Good morning. Let me pray for us real quick before we get into it. Lord, thank you again for our time. Thank you for your word that teaches us, that shapes us, that molds us, that cuts to the marrow and reveals sin to us. Ultimately, that you would transform us, that we would glorify and please you in what we do, and that you would uh, make us like our brother Christ. And so I pray this morning that uh, the, the words that I speak are your words and that you would encourage your people. Thank you for the gift of gathering together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, have you ever considered uh, how important the choices that we make are? Right? We make hundreds of choices every day and probably give little time to thinking through the implications of most of them. While at other times, of course, we, we spend weeks or months uh, laboring over choices. Who should I marry? Uh, wh- sh- when should we have kids? Should I look for a new job? Should we buy a house? Decisions that we know will have long-term lasting implications in our own life and in the lives of those around us. Uh, when I was 16 years old, the day I turned 16, I did what every, well, at least back in the day, every uh, 16-year-old did and went to get our driver's license. So I went there, and I'm ready to go. I'd been telling my friends, I'd been watching my friends get their driver's license left and right. You know, they're, you know, people that clearly I am a better driver than, receiving their license, no problem. So I show up, I'm ready to go, I get in, the instructor gets in, he says, all right, follow this path. And so we start driving, you know, I hit obstacle number one, which is like the little cones you have to weave in between, check, no problem. Then I do the little, like, parking thing, no problem. I do the little S-curve thing, no problem. And then I get to the obstacle that everyone dreads, but I have no worry of, which is what? Parallel parking, right? So I get in my spot. I drive up next to the little car. When I back up, I see, okay, front left tire, back right tire. I start my turn, and I go in too, too quick, right? But it's okay. I can fix it. I go in too quick, but since I'm in too sharp, my back right wheel hits the curb. It's at that moment I stop. I hit the brakes. And the instructor says, it's okay, keep going. Now, in that moment, my literal hermeneutic took over because I said, I don't think I should keep going, but that's what he said to do, so that's what I'm going to do. So I do. I keep going. I go up on the curve. I spin around and finally drop right into place in a perfect parallel parking position. And he looks at me and he goes, all right, take it back to the house. I said, great, mission accomplished, good to go. We get to the place and he says, well, if you run up on the curb, you can endanger pedestrians. It's an automatic failure. Come back next week. And I looked at him, and I thought, but you said keep going. All I did was do what you said. Now, listen, I made the choice. I could have fixed it the right way. I made the choice to keep going, to listen to him, literally. And, of course, I had to go back to school the next day and deal with the consequences of that decision. Man, I did not want to go. I wanted to hide But you know what? To this day, 42 years old, if you need your car parallel parked, I'm your guy because I practice for a straight week. (laughs) So the decisions we make, they have consequences. And friends, I want to also say, I know these last few weeks in Samuel, they have seemed or may seem a bit laborious, and they are. But as I've mentioned many times, I think the author of Samuel is quite brilliant. And I think it's a very clear, it's clear to me that the detailed accounts of this section of David's life is purposeful, and they show us the reality, the very reality of the thing that I'm speaking about today, and that's this. 
that our decisions matter. Our decisions matter. Most importantly is our decision of who to follow, right? Who are we following? Are we uh, following Yahweh and His statutes and live according to His ways? Are we subservient to His kingdom? Or do we follow something else or someone else entirely? The author is belaboring this point. Sin has consequences. Our decisions matter. And in David's case, as we have seen and will continue to see, the consequences of the choices he make, made shake not only his, his own life, his family lives, but it shakes the very kingdom that he is over. And so chapter 20, let's get into our text this morning and see what we can learn. Verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. If you remember at the end of last week, uh, we, we saw the rebellion against David and, and his, his men, uh, the men of Judah, are laying claim to bring him back after the rebellion is over, uh, which the men of the other tribes of Israel aren't sure of. Some of them are in favor of David, some are not. And so there's this disruption to the reestablishment of David's kingdom. And into this disruption uh, enters this man named Sheba. We don't know much about Sheba except the lone adjective that describes him, and that is worthless. Right? Some translation, translations call him a troublemaker. He's no good. Um, friends, if decisions don't matter, uh, for all eternity, this guy is known as the worthless man, Sheba. Okay? He's no good. But Sheba gets up and he blows his trumpet and tells this disgruntled, the disgruntled Israelites, we have no portion in David, every man to his tent. And this, those, those Israelites that had been with David, they, they now start to follow Sheba. And, and, and this is much more of like a secession, like we're, we're getting out of here. Not so much a, a, an armed rebellion of yet. Sheba is basically saying, why are we trying to figure out our portion with this guy? We don't need him. Right? Follow me. So David then proceeds on to his house, and upon arrival we see a, a really sad turn of events in verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. So this is hard. Um, it's sad, and it's a rather strange portion of our text. Uh, many commentaries that I, I read disagree on what to do with the passage, but they all agree on at least one part, that the author could have tacked this on at the end, right? He didn't have to put it in verse 3 in this very prominent part of the story, Right? It, it has a prominent position in our story, and so it must be important. And it's seemingly the first act that David does when he returns to the palace. Right? We have to get into the, the, the meta-narrative here a little bit to understand, but we're seeing play out in real time throughout this entire chapter, and, and, and it, what we're seeing is the continual reverberations, as David says, the, those ripples of sin. Right? You drop the sin into the water, the lake, and the, the ripples keep going and going and going. And that's what's happening, these continual reverberations of David's sin and the discipline that God brought to it. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered, and God is bringing to fruition that judgment and discipline on David. Listen again to Nathan's words, uh, the prophet Nathan from chapter 12. 
He said, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son of this son. For, we, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And since that time, we've seen David's baby with Bathsheba die. We've seen Absalom kill Amnon. We've seen Absalom rebel against his father David drive him away from his palace, from Jerusalem. And then Absalom violated these very women that David left in the palace to care for the palace. And he did it on the rooftop for everyone to see, just as Nathan said would happen. And so now David returns, and he takes these women, and he puts them in a place, almost certainly within the palace walls, under guard. And he provides for all their needs, but he no longer treats them like concubines by engaging with them Uh, in relations with them. He treats them as widows until the day of their death. And this is a hard text, but I think we have to view both the positive and the negative aspects to this portion. For the negative, these women have essentially become victims of their own beauty, right? They, They had been given the opportunity to be concubines of the king, and before the rebellion, no doubt, had lived uh, a, a nice lifestyle, a lavish lifestyle, they enjoyed the fruit of being close, in close proximity to the king and his palace. Unfortunately, because of that very situation when the rebellion happened, they became victims of wicked Absalom and his desire to hurt David and to exert power over Jerusalem. They had become the victims of their circumstances due to the sin of other people. And I'm not here to comment on the idea of concubines, but what I am saying is that the first sin... Uh, that the first, that, that this sin of David, which brought judgment, and then the sin of Absalom through the rebellion and violation of these women, had caused them to be disgraced and to endure shame and heartache and live out their lives essentially apart from society. If there is a positive spin on it, I believe that David's act is actually one of mercy and kindness. I know it doesn't seem that way, but David isn't endangering their lives or seeking to make their lives miserable. Rather, he's protecting them from further fallout, right? He's providing for them. He's protecting them with guards. He's giving them a place to live. That, that uh, Hebrew word for palace is the same one for house. Uh, I think they're all, that, that David is providing for them within the palace. He's locking them away and caring for them, providing for their needs, so that what happened before cannot and will not happen again. And I think it's okay to ask, was this the best way to, to do that? Was this the best way to care for them? To essentially keep them away from potentially marrying again or living a different life? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. Maybe, maybe not. We can't know. But this, again, is in the context of Sheba's rebellion, right? Absalom's rebellion led to the first disgrace of these ladies, and David's going, you know what? I don't know where this rebellion is going to lead us. But I know that if we leave again or if something were to happen, I can't let whatever happened to these girls happen again. And so he does what he does. It's hard. It's sad. It takes us back to chapter 13 when David uh, preached and and, and told us about Tamar. And through nothing more than the the sin and consequence of being sinned against, 
by Amnon, she lived a desolate woman in Absalom's house. All right, our choices matter. Sin has consequence. And this part of the story is part of the continual reverberations of David's sin from way back in chapter 11. It's part of that same narrative. Let's keep going. Verse 4. And then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with, with, to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do, more harm, do us more harm than Absalom. Take the Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. And now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword, and in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand, to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people had stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he had, was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So the second act that David performs after resolving the issue with the concubines is to have his new commander, Amasa, go and assemble the fighting men of Judah and bring them back to him. And we don't know why, but Amasa delays. Maybe he's still loyal to Absalom and mad at David. We don't know. We really don't know, but he delays. And then David talks to Abishai and says uh, that Sheba, if not dealt with, will do more harm to us than even Absalom did. And to take these fighting men and pursue him so that he didn't get to the fortified cities and escape. And I don't know why he thinks it would be more detrimental than what Absalom did. Maybe the, the kingdom is already kind of shaky and he thinks that further division could happen. We're not entirely sure. But David had demoted Joab, and so he, he talks to Amasa. He doesn't show up, and so he turns to Abishai to lead the charge. And interestingly enough, when they do go out, whose men does it say that they are? Joab's. Joab's men. And so they go out and pursue Sheba. Now, there's this stone. There's this great stone at Gibeon, and when they arrive there, it must have been a significant meeting place, and, and, and lo and behold, here comes Amasa. And we don't know why all of a sudden he's there, but he shows up, and he seems to have caught wind of what's going on, so he's come to meet the men. And then the narrator turns to Joab. And we're not always privy to what people are wearing in the scriptures, but when uh, the author goes to such detail to show, hey, I, he was wearing this, it's important. It says, he was wearing a soldier's garment, and over the garment was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. In other words, we're to know that Joab is a soldier ready for battle, right? He's wearing a soldier's outfit. But Amasa should not suspect anything, right? He, he shouldn't suspect anything. He's in charge. 
And as Joab's walking forward, his sword falls out, probably on purpose. We don't know, but probably on purpose. And Joab picks up the sword with his left hand. Okay, his fighting hand would have been his right hand. He picks up the sword with his left hand, doesn't sheathe it. And Joab says, is it well with you, my brother? How are you, Amasa? How's it going? Where you been? Good to see you. And he walks up and he takes his beard with his right hand to kiss him, which is customary. Amasa would have had no reason to think that this was strange. But ruthless Joab takes the knife with his left hand and he, and he stabs Amasa in the stomach and does such damage that a second blow isn't even necessary. All right, Amasa is dead. And for the astute reader, one with a good memory, remember back in 2 Samuel 3, after the death of Joab's brother Azael by Abner, Joab gets Abner alone in the gates, pulls him aside in a, in a uh, city of refuge. Right? Again, Abner would have had no reason to fear Joab. But Joab stabs him in the stomach. This is kind of his M.O., and he's, he's done it again. The next line is very telling. It says, Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, there is within Joab, and even Abishai, but especially in Joab, a ruthlessness that is actually quite appalling. Joab kills Amasa. There's no real conversation about it. He just guts him and keeps going. And then there's a whole section of how Amasa was so gross to look at that people would just stop until they moved them out of the way. You see, Joab is, a, is this wild animal of a man. He's ruthless. He's vengeful. He took revenge into his own hands with Abner and now with Amasa. He's the one who I believe knew David's secret about Uriah. He also won't take no for an answer. But here's the thing. Joab is deeply loyal to David. He's deeply loyal to David. It's strange, but he, he never tries to take the throne. He never does. He's just this wild, crazy, unleashed, unhinged man. But he's loyal to David. And David can't seem to rein him in, right? And, and this will all come back to bite Joab. Joab's sin will catch up with him. He will have consequences for his sin as well. But here's the reality. Joab has a very poor understanding of what it is to be loyal to the king. He has a very poor understanding of what it means to be loyal. Friends, I think we see a lot of really uh, sad things in our society today, in our culture. But one of the things that saddens me the most is related to what people think about Christians. What unbelievers think about Christians due to the actions of so-called Christians. To most non-Christians in America, there seems to be this idea that all Christians are super Republican, Trump-supporting, uh, people who favor racism, sh likes to shoot things, not to mention that we don't like homosexuals, people who have had abortions, and people who took the vaccine. We don't like any of those things, right? Th there is this perception outside of, uh, of to, to, from non-believers that look upon all Christians because of the very poor action of a few let me be clear, I'm not condemning you if you are a Republican, voted for Trump, own a gun. I'm not condemning you at all. What I am saying is that when I turn on the TV and see that the way that people act in the name of Christ, I can't say I really blame unbelievers for thinking those things. There are great many people who do things in the name of Christ or for the name of Christ or on behalf of Christ, calling themselves Christians, and their actions are clearly unbiblical and unchristian. And friends, there is a reason that we get up here every week and preach the Word and encourage you to read the Word and to know it cover to cover and to understand God and to understand His attributes and His ways and His nature and to obey His commands. It's because when people truly act like 
Christians, they should see, other people should see the biblical Christ. When people act like Christians, they should see Christ. They should see image bearers who look like their father in heaven, who look like their brother in heaven, who display the hands and feet of Christ to those uh, outside of them who are willing to lay down their life and preferences and means and all for the sake of Christ and not be image bearers of any president, ideology, or nation. Friends, our loyalty should be to Christ and our actions should be Christ-like, but we don't become Christians and, and, and instantly know how to do that, right? You don't become a husband or a wife and instantly know how to be a really good husband or a really good wife. Good luck with that. Right? We must spend our lives dedicated to studying and learning and applying God's Word to our lives and humbling ourselves and obey it, even the stuff we'd prefer not to, because there's plenty of stuff that some days I would prefer not to obey. We can discern wisdom and right actions and God-glorifying, God-pleasing uh, actions because we know the Scriptures. We don't end up like Joab, who is a revenge-seeking wild man who acts on behalf of the kingdom, when in reality... He's displaying the domain of darkness, not the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Remember, such were some of you, but we are no longer, right? We are no longer. So we want to strive to be loyal to Christ and Christ alone and to His kingdom. Again, I'm not saying you can't be political, you can't vote for any particular candidate, or be proud to be uh, American from this country. I still think it's the greatest country in the world. But all of those loyalties must be viewed through the lens of the Scriptures and first be loyal to the things that make much of our true king and not some earthly figurehead, right? When people see the lives of true Christians, they should see Christ. And there's always going to be the squeaky wheels that give Christians a bad name, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Fine. But as we go out into society, as we go out and engage our neighbors, we want to represent Christ and be image bearers of Christ well. And so the unbelievers look upon our lives and go... I've heard about Christians, I don't like it, but you guys act differently. What is that? And then we can actually point them to the God of the Bible, right? That is, that is a, a lost aspect of evangelism that, that we need to be participating in. Now, back to our text. The Joab, uh, Joab and Abishai are going to uh, catch up with Sheba, and they have a very interesting encounter with uh, one wise lady. Look at verse 14. Now Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel uh, of Beth Maka, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel at Beth Maka. They cast up a mound against the city, and, stood, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. And then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why, do you, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. 
And then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So we catch back up with Sheba, who has been on the run, and he ends up in a town called Abel. And Joab and his men besiege the city. They encircle it, and they build uh, a ramp up to the walls. Uh, so, you know, a lot of cities, were when they were fortified, they were built up high. They take the high ground. And so when you would besiege a city, you would basically build a ramp up. So you could get up there, and they were going to try and break down this wall. And so this lady comes out and says, hey, where's Joab? Where's Joab? I need to speak with him. Again, Joab is clearly in charge here. Joab comes up, and the lady says, In past times, people would come to this town, to Abel, and seek counsel. We had this reputation for, for being a peaceful, faithful, wise community of Yahweh followers. And so now, why would you come and destroy it? Why would you seek to swallow up a heritage of the Lord? And Joab's like, Oh, that's, that's not true at all. That's not what we're doing here. We're just after a guy named Sheba. Give him to us, and we'll go. He has lifted up his hand against the king. And the lady's answer is kind of shocking, but it also reveals her own uh, loyalty to David as much as it reveals the care for her city. She says, okay, we'll throw his head over the wall to you. Now, the Old Testament's kind of gruesome. I get it. <laughs> you know, sorry. It was a different time, but that's what she says. And so it says she went into all the people in her wisdom. She was clearly a prominent member of this community. People listened to her, and she convinced them that it was the good and right thing to do. And so they cut off the head of Sheba and throws, throw it out to Joab. And just like everyone else in the story, her decision also has consequences. Her, her decisions also have consequences. She decided to go out while the wall is getting pummeled and to call for the commander of the army at her own peril. She made a call to deal with Sheba, but those decisions saved her city. And so we see here again that decisions, both good and bad, have consequences. She was also being faithful to God's anointed king. So the decision to be faithful to her king had positive consequences by saving her city and ending the rebellion. And so the story ends where it begins with a trumpet blow. Joab blows the trumpet, and all his men go back to their place. But then we end chapter 20 with what I call a, a kingdom status update. Right? It's a kingdom status update. What is the status of David's kingdom? Verse 23 it closes with this. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira and Jerite was also David's priests. This little update might seem strange to just be put in there, but it's not at all. In fact, there uh, is another update prior to this, at the end of, verse, of chapter 8. Uh, let me read that real quick. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Uriah was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder, and Zadok the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. You see, chapter 8, I think, was really the pinnacle of David's kingdom. God had just made, in chapter 7, these covenant promises with David, and he, he said that someone would sit upon his throne forever. 
right? The covenant that is basically a, a, a continuation and a flushing out of the Abrahamic covenant, bringing further fulfillment to some of these uh, ideas and displaying them more completely uh, is starting to be seen, right, in chapter 7. And then chapter 8, David has won wars and subdued enemies and made a name for himself by striking down rebellious people and setting up garrisons all throughout the empire, maintaining peace, maintaining justice, now, you know, making sure that, that, that administering justice and equity to all people, it's a high point. And then right after chapter 8, you have chapter 9, which is uh, his dealings with Mephibosheth from Saul's family, which is, again, a, a display of what that justice and equity looks like through King David. And then chapter 10, he continues to beat back down the enemy. So the end of chapter 8 is really this kind of pinnacle statement about David's earthly kingdom and his leadership and the stability of that kingdom. But what happens in chapter 11, right? Bathsheba, Uriah, Nathan. And so the, everything that has happened since then has led to this uh, stable kingdom being shaken to its very core and at times hanging on by a thread. There's been two rebellions. He's had to go into exile. The people within his nation don't know who to follow. And so this newest kingdom status update looks similar, but it's different. And so I want to compare them for just a minute. First, in chapter 8, David is mentioned first, reigning over Israel, administering just, justice and equity to all people. However, in chapter 20, who's mentioned first? Joab. Joab was in command of all the army of Israel in chapter 8, too, but now David's not mentioned. And Joab's in charge, even though David had not appointed him. Right? He had demoted him. And then here in chapter 20, you've got Adoram, who's in charge of the forced labor, which is interesting because in chapter 8, there is no forced labor. Right? It's, you know... Different commenters had different things to say about this, but it seems to be that people were devoted to the kingdom and worked on behalf of the kingdom with joy and, and gladness for King David, willingly followed David. And finally, in chapter 8, you've got David's sons who were priests, but here there's no mentions of David's sons as priests. Friends, there's a great contrast between chapter 8 and chapter 20. Originally, the, the, the people wanted a kingdom, way back in 1 Samuel, they wanted a kingdom, a king, like the other nations, to be like the other nations, and the Lord allowed them to have it. And so they cho chose Saul because he was tall, dark, and handsome, right? But, but he was a bad king and an ungodly guy. And then the people got David, who was a king after God's own heart. And listen, if you want a kingdom to thrive in this world, your best chance is with a guy who is after God's heart. And he did a really good job for a while. But even a man after God's own heart, at best, is going to make decisions that will ultimately lead that kingdom to be unstable and shaky. Why? Because the kingdoms of men will fail because mankind fails. If you don't believe me, pick up a history book. Every earthly kingdom that has ever existed is either no longer with us or is on its way to being gone. If, you, if we could live long enough, all the kingdoms that we know and are close with or think about or countries, they'll, they'll be gone. Or they will not be on the prominent world stage. Right? Why? Because the kingdoms of men are ruled by sinful men who make decisions, and decisions have consequences. We've seen it over and over and over again. And even with the best of them, like King David, two generations from now, his kingdom will divide and go into exile, and another kingdom will take over, and then another, and then another. So what's the good news? The good news is this. The Bible tells us of promises that God intends to keep. And there are many, many important promises for us to know and to trust and to hold on to. But for our purposes, after the times of King David, 
Once the kingdom of Israel is divided and taken into exile, and things look bleak, a guy by the name of Daniel interprets a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue whose head is made of gold and his chest and arms of silver and its middle and, thigh, uh, and thighs of bronze, his legs of iron and his feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is actually the head of gold, which if you're Nebuchadnezzar, that sounds pretty good, right? But here's the catch, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says that there's actually going to be a kingdom inferior to you that shall arise after you, and yet another which shall rule the earth, and then a fourth, the strongest iron, and then another which will crush these. And this proves my point, right? The incredibly strong kingdoms of man will eventually fall and be destroyed, and another will take its place. And that will happen over and over and over and over and over again throughout history until Daniel 2.44 says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Friends, humans were designed and created to rule and subdue and co-reign over creation. We have the idea of kingdom built into our hearts, into our beings. We desire leadership and guidance and authority, whether it is distributed by us or given to us. This is why rules and boundaries are so important for children. It's so important for people. We have license and the freedom to make choices, but here's the deal. We sin. We make decisions that are tainted by sin, and those decisions have real consequences. Our sin has real consequences. But the good news is there is coming a day when our true king is going to come from heaven and he is going to put his foot down on the Mount of Olives and the ground is going to split from north to south. And he's going to walk into Jerusalem one more time, not as a, on a donkey representing royalty, but on his feet, which are royal. Our conquering king who breaks down all the kingdoms of man is going to establish a kingdom here on earth that cannot be shaken, that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be divided. And our king, he's going to rule and govern and make decisions that are not tainted by sin, but rather are from the mouth of God himself. And that kingdom will flourish. In fact, that will be the kingdom that we've all been waiting for. This is the type of kingdom that the Israelites wanted when they wanted their first king, but they were seeking the wrong guy for the job. But when Jesus Christ comes down and establishes his kingdom, it will be glorious and it will last forever. It will never be shaken. There will never be a status update on his kingdom that says, well, it started strong, but it's not going as well as it used to be. There will never be a status update that says there used to be a kingdom ruled by Jesus, but it's gone because that's what happens to kingdoms. No, the status update on the kingdom of heaven will say it's glorious. It's glorious, this kingdom let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, that he may teach us his ways and that we may, may walk in his paths. Let us no longer try and figure out disputes on our own. Rather, let us go up to the king. Let us turn our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks because we no longer need them for war or defending our nation or advancing our kingdom because there is only one kingdom and the man who leads it is God himself. So this kingdom never falters. That's the status update. There are always... Uh, this will always be the status update of God's kingdom, and that is good news for us. And so this morning, if you're here, you're hurting, you're beating yourself up over your sin, 
the consequences of your sin, if you're dealing with the discipline and judgment that comes from sin and the consequences of those choices, let me try to encourage us in a couple of ways. If I haven't said it already, I want us to know our decisions do have consequences. Our sin has consequences, consequences that bring judgment. That's a promise. However, another promise the Bible makes is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. All right, we, we will be granted access to his kingdom. So we repent of our sins and come under his lordship, and he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, and he hides our life in Christ, and he has set us free, in which Galatians 5.1 tells us the reason he has set us free, which is to be free. For freedom, Christ has set us free, right? Don't, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Christ died so for you to be free. If you're in here this morning and you're not free, you're not living the life that Christ has for you. You're not living the life that he died to give you, to be free from the guilt of sin and shame and bondage that our sinful decisions have brought us to. If you are a follower of Christ in here this morning, this is the good news for you. Number two, my other encouragement to you this morning is to not be someone who calls themselves a Christian but doesn't know how to be one. Right? None of us are perfect, or should we be assumed to know everything about godliness? However, the Bible says that we have all things in the scriptures that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. All right? If you want to know how to make godly decisions that don't have sinful consequences, then we learn it from the book. We read the book. We learn it. We learn the right way, and we do those things. We, we put off the old self. We're transformed in the spirit of our mind. We learn the right way. Clearly, the wrong way was this, so we have to put that away. We put that off. We learn the right way, and then we put that on. We do it. We practice it. We want our decisions that we make now in life not to lead us to the consequences of, of discipline and judgment. Rather, we want the decisions we make now to lead us to rewards in the kingdom. That's what we're about, and that's what we're after. So this is the kind of end of the narrative of David and his life here and the sin, the consequences of that sin. The, the next few weeks in 2 Samuel are, you know, they call them appendixes, but they're a little bit more of, of anecdotal. But I want to ask us, where are we this morning? Right? Where are we this morning? I want us to be encouraged. One of the laborious things about these passages is that they, they, they kind of talk about the same thing, which is sin has consequences, <laughs> you know? And that's, that can be hard, but I want us to be encouraged because, listen, we cannot understand sin and suffering outside of eternity. We cannot understand sin and suffering outside of the reality that our king is coming. We just have to wait a little longer. In a minute, we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper, which is something that our king gave to us as a reminder of what he's done for us. It's a, a reminder that he fully intends to keep his promises. It's a reminder that, that he's coming back. And it actually says in Luke twenty two sixteen 16, that the next time he partakes of this meal, it will be with us in the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, right? In the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. That's the future that we have to look forward to. Yes, sin has consequences. Yes, strive for godliness. Yes, strive for holiness. Yes, strive to make right and good decisions that don't have these awful consequences. But remember, there's coming a day where we won't have to worry about it anymore where we will make right decisions, that, we, that our king will be ruling. And I think it's really interesting. I'm going to land the plane now. I think it's interesting that in that kingdom, clearly we have to go up to, to the mountain to, to, to learn from God. Like, we won't know everything, so we're going to spend time, like, learning and hearing from God himself. 
which I think is a better way. Like, well, we've got everything we need because God's here now. We just go on. No, we, we're going to still learn from him. Still, he's got an endless amount for us. This is our future. This is what we have to look forward to. So let me pray. If you're serving, you may, you may come up um, and we'll get ready to uh, take the Lord's Supper together. Again, if you're, if you're new with this, we just hold on to it and we will, um, we'll, we'll, once it's all passed out, we'll take it uh, together. So if you'll just hold on to it and uh, I'll come back up and lead us. Uh, but let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. I don't think anybody in here needs to be reminded that our, our actions have consequences and sinful actions have hard consequences, sinful consequences. And it can lead to uh, judgment. It can lead to discipline. I think that is ever in front of us. I think the harder thing is before it starts to go south, we need to look back uh, in Samuel to chapter 7 where, where you promise that there is going to be a king that will sit on David's throne that will rule forever. So even though our, our, our actions have these sinful consequences, there is coming a day when we will be a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that will be ruled by you, Lord. And so first, we pray that you would bring that quickly, that you would come, that you would establish your kingdom, that you would make that happen quickly. But until that day, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would empower us, that you would help us to know the right way to live so that we can live and make decisions that glorify you, that please you, that display your goodness to the crea- uh, people and creation around us. And I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us in that. Lord, we need you, and we thank you for Jesus who died and rose again, that we might be free, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might live. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.